My name is Bonnie Landry. I'd like to welcome you to my podcast with my co-hosts, Elizabeth and Christina, where we explore the questions about homeschooling and family life and how we can make joy normal. Okay, so I would like to introduce today for our listeners, author David Clayton. David Clayton is the author of a book that I am presently reading with my daughter, actually, that's absolutely beautiful. And so it is has filled me with all kinds of questions. And I thought, well, maybe you'd be agree to an interview. So welcome, David. So nice to have you on the show. Very nice to be here, Bonnie. So a short intro, and then you can fill in any blanks if I miss uh, anything really important. David is an internationally known artist, teacher, writer, and broadcaster. He moved to the U.S. from his native England in 09 and has been working here ever since. Uh, you currently work as Provo of Pontifex University, an online Catholic education platform, where you have designed a unique inaugural program of master in, Masters in Sacred Arts, which is a traditional formation in beauty for artists, patrons of the arts, and anyone who wants to contribute creatively to the transformation of the culture in the modern world. That obviously is, is why you've written this book, is to make it more accessible for those of us who yeah. maybe aren't, both for those who are in the art world and those who are not, because I am completely a-artistic, <laughs> but I do have an appreciation of art, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to build up my own understanding and skill over the years. I've tried to do that with my children. I think that this book I have found to be very accessible to me on not so much. I'm only about a third of the way through the book. So maybe some of the questions I, I ask of you will actually be answered in the book. But uh, I was just too impatient <laughs> to wait. So so you also have a blog, thewayofbeauty.org, which I've noticed is even even more accessible because it's in little chunks, I would say, to sort of the, the average person. And... You also have a podcast, which I have not yet, I've only listened to one episode. I would assume that there are episodes on there that are more sort of for the general public, as opposed to somebody who already has a more advanced interest in art. Is, would that be true? <clears throat> yeah. So the general approach that I try to take is I assume an intelligent reader or listener, um, but uh not necessarily one who is knowledgeable. So that means that if I introduce ideas, I try to do so um, right from the sort of axiomatic level, from first assumptions and uh, take things from first principles as far as possible. Um, so I try not to assume a high level of uh, knowledge at the outset. But I think that once you begin uh, with those sort of basic facts and definitions, then you can take people quite far uh, through the logic or the reason of what you're saying. So that, that's the way that I try to approach it. Okay, I appreciate that. And I found that with myself, not having a, a vast knowledge of art, I find that it is, it's, the book is forming me, really, which is what we should always be reading something that forms us, right? And interestingly, uh, the book has in it... A, a big section on the Liturgy of the Hours, which you had fairly recently adopted into our life, uh, which is one of the upshots of COVID that was really positive for our family, was that with just our youngest at home, uh, the three of us started praying the Liturgy of the Hours maybe eight months ago or something to sort of have a, a, a clearer understanding of the purpose of that, but also being far enough into it that we realized, yeah, some of these things are we're realizing, you know, the value of of the Liturgy of the Hours and how we can sort of infuse that into our life. I find the book has has made me wonder a lot of things that I think would be of interest to my listeners. Now, I have a fairly young listenership in general. I would say that most of them have young families, homeschooling young families, right? Because I think the draw is that I talk a lot about relationships and what it is that in our lives can can impact the positive relationships with our children and how we are witnesses to uh, Christ's love within our family. And that's really our primary means of evangelization. I find that the relationship between what I do and what you're saying, uh, quite profound, actually, because what my, my primary belief is that joy, which we are born to seek, right? It's laid on our heart to seek joy is the human emotion manifestation of beauty. So you say this thing in your book. Can I read a little quote from the book? 
Okay, so this quote really struck me because I've used this exact same phrase in talks that I give on, on relationship. So, to quote, As discussed earlier, when we live the Christian life of love, its radiance is beauty. The impact of this will be to arouse the curiosity of those around us, for they will be attracted to it, and they will start to ask questions. They will want what we have. That's the phrase I have used so many times. In co- they will want what you have. If they see tenderness and love and joy in your family relationships, they're going to want what you have. To the degree that we are formed in beauty and love, we have prudence. This is the wisdom that will enable us to respond. We will intuitively know how to answer questions as well as know what to say. That attraction as we live out our Christian lives, that attraction to what we have is such a powerful and passive means of evangelization. So some of the questions that are sort of on my mind are things around, really around family life. Now, I know you've written a book with another author, The Little Oratory, which is on family life. So maybe some of that will come out of this. I have not read the book yet, but I think that it might be um, one that my listeners really would appreciate. When we live a life of joy, people are drawn to that. They want what we have. So how do we cultivate, first of all, an appreciation and sensitivity to beauty uh, in our family lives? I'm focusing on on joy and relationships, but in terms of the, the bigger picture of that, how do we cultivate an appreciation and sensitivity to beauty in our family lives with a young family? Um, I would say that it uh, comes down uh, to, there are many ways, including, um, yes, the, uh, the relationships that we have, people will perceive those and will become sensitive to the the radiance of that, as you describe. But um, what I was thinking of as well, and I, as you, you're right, I do talk about this in greater depth in the second book you mentioned, which is called uh, The Little Oratory, uh, Beginner's Guide to Praying in the Home. <clears throat> and um, what I would say is that the most profound formation in beauty is are the comes from the images and what we look at when we pray to God. And so uh, the emphasis in that book, and also I think through, the, uh, through, the, through both books as we referred to, is, it, is to uh, get into the habit of praying the Liturgy of the Hours because the Liturgy is an extension, the Liturgy of the Hours is an extension of the Mass and therefore continues that profound encounter with God. So we're, our souls are... Uh, bare, so to speak, are opened up to God in a particular way. That's what it's designed to do to us. Um, and then if we engage with visual imagery as we do that, that will form our taste and the images we're attracted to most profoundly. So that means then that uh, you need to choose that art well. Now, you can just go with your taste. If you have doubts about that, um, then the easiest thing is to go with tradition. And in both books, I describe the traditional styles of liturgical art. Um, and it's the, it's the style, uh, not just whether I, th- I like it. Um, it's about whether it's iconographic or Baroque or Gothic, for example. Um, these things form us in particular ways. They're all, those three are all authentic, uh, liturgical artistic traditions i would say that uh, we need to get into the habit of praying with our eyes open uh, one of the things that i talk about a great deal is the, how we've in the roman rite we've lost the habit of engaging with uh, visual imagery in the wor- in our worship people tend to do it in, de- in devotional prayer uh, but uh, the most profound place in which to do this is in the liturgy. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, the Mass is an eyes-closed affair for the, de- the devout, uh, perhaps watching the Mass, perhaps engaging with the Blessed Sacrament. But really, there's all, all the art in the church, no matter how beautiful, is wasted if we're not engaging in it during the course of our worship. If it's just setting the tone or becoming a beautiful backdrop to mm. what's going on, there's a problem. Mm-hmm. This is something that it's difficult for us to influence um, in the context of a church. I, I 
really on the whole don't like wagging my fingers at priests and sort of complaining about what they do even if I don't agree with what they do uh, but in the home we do have control we can create an icon corner we can control the imagery that we have in our homes and the style of the images and even if it comes down to just getting good prints which you frame up that that is better than having bad original art so there's nothing wrong with getting reproductions at all and the challenge by the way if artists listen to that and say we're going to put you out of a job the answer is yes we will put you out of a job right. unless you improve your art right. it's up to you to speak with and stop complaining about everybody else not buying your pictures if you're not good <laughs> enough they, they will Well, this is, uh, okay, that's some lovely commentary on, on cultivation because we do have so much um, so much control in our own homes. One of the things that we did when we were, our kids were in small and in church, we would keep them quiet by pointing things yeah. out in the art in the church. <laughs> so, so, you know, talking about the stations of the cross or whispering in their ear about, you know, some statue or whatever, so that we would engage them into as opposed to distract them away from the liturgy. And that I found a really helpful tool as a parent, right, to, to draw them into that. I do notice that like in a Byzantine church, the images are much more lively and and uh, everywhere, and you can't help but be engaged with the art because it's so present and so colorful, and it's it surrounds you. It's so much a part of of the liturgy itself. It's also being aware of when to engage, so that, for example, uh, if you've been to a Byzantine liturgy, it's punctuated by the priest coming out of the great doors and it, praying to Mary and then praying to her son Christ. And what will happen is he will come out, incense the image of Our Lady while he prays to her, looking at the image as he does so. And then when he says, through your son, he swings to the right and then does the same to the son. And the point I'm making is that people are not doing that in the course of the liturgy. So mm. uh, the way to draw them into the liturgy is to most directly um, and what you did was great but I'm thinking also that every time Our Lady is invoked then you can look at the this, there'll be a statue of Our Lady somewhere and address Our Lady through the statue in the course of the liturgy in the course of the worship um, if the saint is mentioned hopefully there's a, there's the uh, right. saint of the day ideally you'd have that out I mean I mean the, the problem in the church is that the schema is not really designed to engage with the liturgy because the habit is so far behind us now that on the whole, the art you see in churches reflects devotional, the, the favourite devotion of the last priest or the committee that appointed it, and actually not um, thought into how to engage with it in the liturgy. And you, this would right. need uh, very insightful priests who understand how to, where the soft spots are in the liturgy, in the mass, that allow him to incense a... Right, bring our attention to it, right. An image, for example. Mm -hmm. And the laity. Yeah, the laity looking for those opportunities. I'm always wary of, of us, as I say, of sort of, lecturing priests on how to do that I and mean, we have we should be grateful for all the priests we have mm -hmm. so that's but that's something that you can do in the domestic church so that if it's the feast of a particular saint try to have that saint out move it to the center <clears throat> and i describe the set um schema uh, the traditional schema in other words the the core imagery uh, that would be in the domestic church and then also would be ought right. to be in the uh the parish church as well, and why they're there and what are appropriate points to engage with them. And the whole point of this is that what this does is, first of all, uh, we, we're engaging not only with the image, but with the truth, the prototype that it represents. So that will be the person, but of course, the, the person, the life of the saint then connects to very often a life of virtue, other ideas. And so it opens the door through the imagination uh, to the the prototype and the the 
ideas and the truths, the invisible truths that are associated with the person uh, that we're looking at. And through this, this uh, people worry tr- tremendously about how we're losing people in the churches. And I think so much of this, uh, there are many reasons, I think, and I'm not going to say this is the only one, but one thing that would help is this engagement mm-hmm. with visual imagery because it exercises our imagination. In other words, it cultivates faith through something that is perceptible and tangible, an image. Um, it's taking our minds be- beyond that to the reality right. in heaven. And what it's doing, therefore, is cultivating our uh, facility to believe. Through the things we can see, we can believe in the things we can't, Mm -hmm. um, because there is a direct connection through carefully chosen imagery. Now, when when we pick imagery that is beautiful and good and the content is right, um, we will grow to love that style and, uh, and without being aware, we may not be able to analyze it as I do in my book, mm-hmm. uh, but nevertheless, we will grow to love that and that will then inform our taste and everything else we choose uh, in, in the, and con- and the way that we contribute to the culture in anything that we do. Do you think that art books are also something that's helpful because especially art, sacred art books is something that's sort of helpful to have around with, with kids as well in terms of drawing them in, even though you have to actually crack it open. But, you know, let's assume if you have the book, you're going to crack it open. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you can engage them. Uh, so I, I would suggest um, things, getting them to draw and copy uh, copy pictures and the easiest ones to copy are those that are, mm-hmm. are line drawings and very often you can find those in the iconographic style because they are line based the baroque which is the art of the 17th century is tonal based in other words the, the everything is done by areas right. of light and dark uh, tone shadow and it's a different way of describing for perfectly legitimate, but quite difficult for children yeah. to grasp, in fact. Um, but so uh, iconography uh, is, it's easier to make a start. You still need years of training to do mm-hmm. it well, just like any other art form. But um, when, you, when the, you actually see the line drawn, it's easier then to copy it and to create an image that's, that would be, uh, that a child could be happy with that they've actually completed a drawing. There's an uh, art program for younger kids that is nice called um, uh, it's by Catholic Heritage Curricular. Are you familiar with it? Ever ancient, ever new. I'm not. No, I don't know. It. It's one that um, is provide you templates so you can you can copy different types of art different styles of art going right from from ancient art through sort of then there's a second book that's more sort of modern art you know modern uh from sort of uh, reformation forward it's an excellent book because the goal is to get the kids with pencil in hand yeah that sounds good it also talks about different works of art and different um different uh, artistic eras which is which is really lovely I have kind of an uh, an odd question, and I, I, I just this is the question that's most been bubbling around in my mind as I'm reading your book. So you talk about harmonious proportion, and I will I'll ask you just to dis- define that for the listeners because uh, I won't do a very good job of that. <laughs> define harmonious proportion and and its place in our in this discussion. Okay, so uh, the. Um, One of the attributes of beauty, according to philosophers, shall we say, people who study aesthetics, is that uh, the parts have to be arranged properly uh, so as to uh, contribute to the whole. Uh, But what I mean by that is that uh, something has a purpose. We can see that the thing as a whole um, is designed for that purpose and when we can see that that means we have to know what it is <laughs> what it's for actually um, so it implies an observer that's called integrity we we delight in the fact that it's well made for what it's what it ought to be 
And then we would look uh, into the, the, the breakdown, the structure of, of anything, and we can see that the parts relate to the whole. There's, there's the way that the, the stru- it's structured. I'm talking about anything now, um, contributes to the whole fulfilling that purpose. And that's called due proportion. Um, and so the thing is proportioned, is broken up, is structured according to what is right. Now, um, when uh, people try to, uh, th- that's something that I'm going to say is intuitively, is intuited, is inferred uh, when we look at something and we delight something. We're, we're not measuring the proportions, we just instinct, what, what people are describing there is what we do instinctively. So the, the, those ideas come not from telling people what they ought to do. It's by observing what people do when they find something beautiful. It's that the, uh, so the starting point is common reaction and consensus. Um, it's not Aristotle. Aristotle is is looking at Greeks around him and saying, "This is what I see people do." Um, that's the starting point. Okay, so when people then wanted to be able to create buildings or art or contribute to the culture, they would start to say, we need something a little bit more than that, that allows us to break this up in such a way that seems to be in harmony with uh, the the beauty of the cosmos. Uh, And the the cosmos, as in creation, as we would call it as Christians, they, they use that as the starting point, again, because there is a consensus, typically, that it is beautiful. Even the most sort of secular, uh, church, religious, hating person will normally acknowledge the beauty of the natural world. Um, and so th- through that, mm-hmm. they start to, again, they start to look at it and observe what is it that we are uh, uh, responding to. And then they would do mathematical analyses of these. And it's, it's, it's a little, little complicated for me to describe how they do that. But the two sources, for example, is they would look at uh, the proportions of the, the human person. So this goes back to the ancient Greeks, and they'd say that in a beautiful person, um, as judged by most people, okay, so it sounds pretty cruel, but this is what they do. I'm looking for the ideal. <laughs> uh, so all people are beautiful, we know objectively, but you know, no one will deny we tend to find some more beautiful than others um, in this fallen world. And so they're looking at what the ideal is that that all of these di- different shapes and sizes of people seem to point to. And, you know, then you get proportions of the number of heads. You know, the, the head is one-seventh or something like this, okay? Um, now, right. <laughs> from this, you get what you call a, a sort of uh, a mathematical description of the of what they would call human music traditionally. In other words, uh, the harmonious proportions of a person. And again, it's not quite as you'd imagine as, as an illustrator would do it. it it's the approach is um, pretty un- original to to this field. But nevertheless, you come up with uh, relationships between the parts that contribute to a beautiful person, between the hand sizes, the, the, the length mm-hmm. of the elbows, the, the length of the torso, in a, in a well-balanced person. Now, uh, th- then they would say, well, if this is correct, we can base the proportions of a building on these, on these mathematical numbers. Um, and if that is correct, we're right about this, then the building should be beautiful as well. If we've, if we've got some sort of mathematical relationship, broad relationship, which we could use to, that we say comes from people, and we all believe that mankind is beautiful, then maybe a building based upon similar mathematical principles would be beautiful too. And so... They then so Vitruvius, who was a Roman architect who wrote a a, a textbook, uh, he used human proportions uh, to uh, govern. Wow. He was saying that these are the side, the way that you govern a beautiful building, and um, so 
Now, the test of that is not that it matches the theory. Again, there's a way of testing that, and that is when you see the buildings that are built, do most people look at it and say that is beautiful? Um, And not the elites Mm. or the people in the universities, but ordinary people. This should be accessible to all people. There should be a broad consensus. Right. Yes. Now, there's another source of proportion. And by proportion, we mean that uh, we're talking about unevenly sized things. So, and, th- and it's through music, through aural music, as instrumental music, that you can get proportions as well. Because music, musical sounds, we know there are combinations of notes which sound good to pretty much everybody. Um, you know, in different times, you might have. Uh, different sorts of harmonies that appeal in different cultures. But at a core, you can find certain relationships for which pretty much everybody hears a a correlation. So, for example, two notes that are an an octave apart, uh, I think pretty much everybody can hear that. It doesn't matter where they come from. They can hear there's some relationship between middle C and then C Mm -hmm. eight notes higher in the in a major scale or something like that. Um, So, as we know, three chords typically in music theory uh, require three notes to to be full. Uh, Where does that theory come from? Again, same place that Aristotle looked. It looks at what most people seem to like when they hear three notes. Okay, this is important. Mm. It's beginning with human Mm. uh, consensus of human perception that theory does not just drop out of right. um, you know ancient Greek writings or musical theorists it's linked to what right. observation of what people actually respond to <clears throat> and so the idea came that mm. just as a, a chord has three different notes the perfection in proportion harmonious proportion is three different sized, elements that work together like a trinity in unity, the Christian might say, analogously. Um, and so if you look at buildings uh, where they had the funds to build three-story houses or more, you see three different stories which are of a different size. Um, and they conform to these mathematical principles. And it might be the number, the the mathematics derived from analysis of the notes that make up a three-part chord. And architects uh, who use that approach would be Alberti, uh, Palladio, um, and from Palladio, who was a, a, a Renaissance architect in Italy, you get the Palladian style, which then became the basis of all Georgian architecture in the UK, and even the sort of neo-colonial, which came from that in in the US. Uh, now, what tends to happen now is when architects design things, either they just use random proportions based upon what they think might look good, which musically you would call cacophony, a horrible sound, or they use equal-sized si- uh, layers. So you have a high-rise with every story identical. That, that is mo- monotony. Right. Or audibly, okay? Uh, right, okay. Which which we also see, yes. we can see that in music too, where there's not enough variation in the music. Yes. And, uh, and, and it becomes monotonous. That, that when they rejected yeah. these traditional ideas of harmony and proportion in architecture, it was at the same time that they were rejecting rejecting it in music. And what's interesting is that they, you know, even in the music school, they refer to the new sort of dissonance. I mean, they say dissonance is good. That The, the, the agent wouldn't be able to understand that. But they're acknowledging in that that it doesn't sound good together. You know, most people hear that it jars, and they say, what's good? Right. It irritates us. <laughs> we want to create unease or something Interesting. like that. I wouldn't agree with that. But, um, but they're not really... Um, arguing with the basic idea that there are certain notes which most people sound good together. What they have to do is tell the masses 
who would listen to this stuff and say it sounds awful. I mean, I don't know modern <laughs> classical music. I don't know what the record sales are or the download numbers, but they're probably tiny. And it's only the elites in the conservatory who convince it themselves and their students that they ought to be listening to it. Most people just shut up and say, well, I don't understand it. Right. Well, actually, uh, the popular form, if you want to have popular music, it, it must sound good to most people. Um, and uh, there's a huge gap in terms of high art music in that it's abandoned its mission to appeal to most people. Right. It's just a, a self-contained world of, uh, of elites uh, impressing their friends at dinner parties. <laughs> and the same thing has happened in architecture and in art as well. So you could structure a, a painting according to basic sort of proportions uh, they're rough guidelines. You, you have to ultimately look at it, move things so that it looks good to the eye and your judgment. Uh, but all of that has been abandoned. Okay. Um, and the motivation is the same in each case. They knew they wanted to destroy tradition because they were anti-Christian mm -hmm. and were going back to the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th, and they wanted to bring in, just destroy the Western culture, Western society, and bring in the new uh, age, effectively, right. driven by sort of forces such as Marxism. When we talk about harmonious proportion, then in in our day to day life, this is somewhere where the where the liturgy of the hours, in a sense, is is colliding with, you know, the day to day life, the liturgy of the hours, and and sort of living out that kind of an ordered life, if you will. Is somehow in relation has to be. This is what I've you know been really spinning around yeah. in my brain. Has to be have a relationship to the proportion that exists in the natural world, the proportion that appeals to us in music, art, architecture. One of the things that I've sort of been on about a, a lot over the years is that order helps you to be joyful, right? We know that because when we tidy up our children's playroom, they just want to play in it, right? We know that because it's attractive to, kids like to know what's happening next. They like to know there's a rhythm to the day. That's important. I wish that I had brought in the Liturgy of the Hours, even a, a um, an abbreviated version of it years ago, knowing what I know now and having lived for it for the last, you know, several months that there's a beautiful pattern uh, that exists. We develop that as part of our homeschooling, primarily around meals, right? So that we gather for a meal, we pray, we we do our schoolwork, we you know have something else that happens after our schoolwork is done. At lunch we gather again, we read together, we you know, there's a there was a pattern and a rhythm to our day and it made for a joyful existence. Primarily a joyful existence that that order to the day. And so when I when I think harmonious proportion, I think order or well-ordered, would you say that there are ways that harmonious proportion plays out, obviously Liturgy of Hours is one of them, in all the little aspects of our life? So we know it exists in nature, we know it exists in art and architecture and music. We would have to say there's uh, writing needs to be well-ordered and well-proportioned. Cooking requires balance and proportion and you know the the skills of cookery require a sense of what what works well together do you think that there's that plays into our everyday life on all those little levels i, I yes i think that there's barely any human activity that can't correspond to this having said this this is not something I, i'm not proposing that you you know you become uh just sort of uh, immobile with indecision uh, if, you, if you had to think about all of these things. So the, the broad approach is to, be, is to govern, as you say, your life according to the broad structures, develop our perception of those, and then rely on that working through to our intuitive sense of what is right and balanced and good um, in the course of what we do. But if you're asking yourself the question as you do these things, even the little things in the day, is this beautiful, is this graceful, mm -hmm. um, then it's more likely to correspond to that. Um, but we shouldn't, as I say, we shouldn't get neurotic no. about this uh, or start worrying about getting it wrong. We, you've got to do something, and so you just do the best you can. Um, otherwise, it becomes a self-defeating right. exercise. Um, 
And, but just to sort of link the, uh, the liturgy of the hours to the things that we described before, uh, because you, you mentioned it, but we didn't say specifically. So there's a number of things. First of all, the pattern of the liturgy of the hours in its corresponds to the musical pattern, which is seen as part of the sort of pattern of the, which also can be linked to the pattern of the, the, the music of the spheres is, is an observation of the pattern of the motion of planets, which again corresponds to the basic musical harmonies numerically. Okay. Hmm. So there's a music, uh, and then they relate that to instrumental music, and then the instrumental music has a, a, a fundamental pattern, for example, of a, an eight-note scale in the Western system, um, in which the eighth is simultaneously the last of the first scale and the first of the next. So you have seven distinct notes, and then eight is sort of overlapping, is the completion and the beginning. And we see that in the liturgical pattern in the day, uh, oh, yeah, the additional point that needs to be made is that the, the amazing thing in music is that the eighth note bears the same quality as the first. It's higher. We're going up either a tone or a semitone, typically in the Western scales. Mm -hmm. um, and, but nevertheless, the amazing thing is that everybody hears that the eighth note, we go up, we go up, we go up, and then it sounds the same, but it's higher. And again, there's nothing mathematically which says that should be the case. Everybody hears it. It's as though we're made to see this pattern rather like uh, we're going up, but it's in a helix that repeats itself in these cyclical repetitions. And in music, you'd say high mm -hmm. C is above low C. In the course of the week, uh, what this tells us is that each day bears its own quality. It's, it's not just an arbitrary 24-hour division. Friday is distinct from Sunday, and Sunday is the eighth day, uh, which we celebrate the resurrection uh, of our Lord. Um, and uh, in the course of the day, uh, St. Benedict in his rule, following on from tradition, says there are, according to the psalmist, we pray, seven, psalmist says seven times a day, I will Praise you, O Lord. And then he says elsewhere in the same psalm, quoting Psalm 118, 119, at midnight I will rise to give thanks. I forget the exact word. But again, there are traditionally eight offices that are said by the church. We might participate in some of them, but in so doing, we're adding to this um, grand hymn of thanksgiving and praise, which is the liturgy that the church as a whole sings and addresses to God um, on on earth or you know to, uh, we do this on earth to God in heaven if you like um, and the other thing is that the course of the year uh, it follows traditional agrarian feasts in some cases but the motion of the planets and the moon Easter uh, is tied to the the, the, uh, the phases of the moon um, so again, they're following seasons and the pattern and motion of the earth in relation to the sun and the moon. And, and, and again, this, is, this governs a pattern of prayer, which if we follow this uh, and we pray well, is impressing itself upon our souls. And so that then we will naturally express that in what we do, um, in little things, just as you described. Okay, so there must be, when we expose our children to things like, let's start from the bottom, you know, living a well-ordered life, praying the Liturgy of the Hours or some of the Liturgy of the Hours with our family, exposing them to beautiful music, exposing them to beautiful art, all of those things can't help but increase harmony, right? Both, wouldn't you say, like within our family and... Uh, it, we will exude that harmony outward as well and, and contribute to the culture. Is, it, is that an overstatement? <laughs> no, I, 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 it's not. I mean, I'm not going to say that these are, that's the only yeah. thing to do. I mean, you know, the, the, the basic elements of, uh, of family life have to be mm -hmm. well observed. The things that most people think about most of the time when they're in the family, you know, mums and dads dealing with kids, that the, 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 the 
they're not thinking about the harmony of the family life. Typically, they're just thinking about like, that we've got to cook, the, <laughs> cook dinner or something. But but um, but no, that to, to try and think of ways in which these beautiful things can be engaged and live a pattern of life that conforms to this will it, it influence people from the inside out, so to speak. It, it, if we have an anthropology in which we have spirit, soul, and body, uh, the spirit in, is, the, is that part of us which engages uh, outside of ourselves, so to speak, with God most profoundly. And then the well-ordered person, the spirit governs the rest of the soul, the other aspects of the soul, and the soul then governs the body and its, its passions and things. And so uh, if, you, if you begin at the deepest place inside us that, that is uh, relating to God, so to speak, which is where the liturgy and these sort of things you describe touch, uh, then the chances are that it will then most profoundly affect the, all other aspects of uh, our desires and what we want to do and what we want to engage with sort of a, pr- a pragmatic kind of question. Um, what is the best way that we can encourage artistic development or support creativity? Uh, you know, when we notice particularly, you know, of my seven kids, several of them have really strong artistic qualities, some different, some, some are musical, some are visual, uh, but they, there are some quite artistically gifted people in my family and I, I am not. I've tried to expose them to things or give them, you know, drawing lessons or whatever, you know, music. Obviously, they all had music. That was always part of the curriculum um, and having music in our home. But, you know, when you see a sort of a specific gift, how do we best support the child in that? Um, well, there are two things to, to consider. One is learning the skills of uh being an artist, in some ways it depends on what particular artistic expression you're talking about. And I know best about art, and I would imagine what I say would extend analogously into other things. Um, you know, I have no clue about literature or poetry, for example, but I'm imagining similar principles would apply. But I'll, I'll, I'll describe what you would do with art. A couple of things to say. First of all, um, the... If you can find uh, someone to teach the skill of drawing, uh, then and drawing from observation, that would be good um, because it can actually be taught. It's just like learning an instrument. The more you practice, the better you get, and and so it really is something that can be taught. It's kind of difficult to find art class art teachers that do that. They want to get everybody expressing themselves. <laughs> Sort of thing. But maybe, yeah, so maybe illustrators would be a good. Source. Sorry, what was that? Um, another one would be illustrators, illustrators okay. Um, because they they have to actually, you know, it's got to look like what it's supposed mm-hmm. to look like. So needs skill. Also, you have people who teach um, botanical drawing and painting. Mm-hmm. If they get a little advanced, where the the sort of basic elements are very. Are still there as they would have been in the 18th century or something. Okay, like that. Um, but the so there's a couple of things to think about. One is learn the skills and learn the skills um, in two ways. One is to learn to draw, and then that can extend into paint. But to draw by observation of nature direct. So then you're actually converting a three-dimensional view, which we perceive when we look at things around us. And converting that into two dimensions, right. and so drawing from life um, is one aspect. Another is copying old masters, mm. and you have to be careful with this. So you need to be art. It needs to be art that they like and enjoy, um, and it needs to be simple enough for them to perceive what the artist has done that they can begin to try and mm-hmm. copy it. What I mean. Um, or at least to do something. Um, some will just throw themselves in and just draw a line and have a go, and that would be fine. Others would just feel overwhelmed if they looked at something. Right. But the copying of old masters is important, and it's that, the, the, through that, that artists ultimately 
develop the style in which they work it. So you, you hear, don't you, you know, artists from the school of Caravaggio. Well, the reason mm-hmm. that he paints in Caravaggio's style is that he was probably he probably learned uh, by copying Caravaggio paintings. Um, right. And so that's why he developed that style as his own too. And in the past, this was not seen as something that was detrimental. If you had somebody who had a good style, you wanted to do that it in that style. And um, some people would then surpass their their teachers in that style. Right. Velasquez, the great Baroque artist, the realist from um, 17th century Spain, he was taught mm-hmm. by a teacher called Francesco Pacheco, who barely anyone has ever heard of nowadays, but he taught a lot of those artists. But so Velasquez learned by copying Pacheco's and similar artists, Mm. but ultimately he surpassed his teacher. uh, Right. um, As did a lot of the students of this guy, Pacheco. Um, So copying old masters, and that just means even if it's just a photocopy, a printout from Google Mm -hmm. Images, for example, uh, will, will be good. Um, and do you think just mucking around with the different mediums too is like to get to know, you know, oil or water or acrylics or whatever to get to know different types of paint? To a degree, yes. But what? But it's probably better to de- um, once they settle on something to become proficient in one medium. Once mm-hmm. you become proficient in one medium, then it's actually relatively easy to uh, move, move to another. Kind of- if you're switching okay. from one medium to another, it becomes confusing um, because the, the paints behave differently. They blend differently. Right. Uh, they, uh, they will dry at different rates, and it ends up becoming a handicap. And I've seen artists, again, uh, they're always doing some new medium. I'm doing stained glass this week. I'm doing, And really what they need to do is rather than learning all these different media, it's much better to focus on one. So... Okay, interesting. What it is that uh, the the student or the child enjoys doing. Right. Variation is always good. I'm not, uh, but uh, if they really want to be an artist, then they need to develop a competence in one medium. And then once they've done that, they will find it much easier to to move. To move. Right. I'm going to mention something um, that my family experienced years ago because I think it would be valuable for our listeners. So when my eldest daughter, who's quite artistic, was was a young child, she loved to draw. And, and at some point, maybe around the age of 10 or something, she stopped drawing. And we happened to have a, a father in our homeschooling group at that time who was, he was both an artist and an art therapist. And I asked him about this. And I said, you know, I, I want to encourage her to continue drawing. And he said, Children often reach a stage, most children reach a stage where they recognize that what they put on the paper with their pencil is not what they had in their head. And he said, usually it doesn't take very much in terms of drawing lessons, a few drawing lessons to get them past that point where they can start to reproduce what's in their head onto paper but when they acknowledge that that's that's not what's happening you know I wanted to draw a ballerina and her leg sticking out in the wrong place that conception of you know this isn't what I wanted it to be sometimes it's just a bump that they just need a few drawing lessons to get over which was really true for her and and that was a really lovely thing you know a gift for me for him to be able to tell me that is like you know, just a few drawing lessons, she'll probably be right back at it, which she was, you know, and so sometimes you don't have to think, oh, okay, well, they're not, obviously, they're not artistic, they're not going to draw anymore. Sometimes they just need a little, a little support along the way. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I didn't know that. That make what you say makes sense. Yeah. But I, the, the, that is the thing, though, that anybody can be, can be mm-hmm. taught to draw to a pretty yeah. good level. You find a good teacher. I, I have a feeling that most children would enjoy it because they'd start to be delighted and amazed at what they're able to do actually yeah you have that, that yeah given that, some yes, some guidance because, because there is yeah. this feeling that it just has to be a natural talent and if you don't have it you, you don't bother 
I wanted to just speak to the way of beauty for another moment or two. And then I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about the little oratory, because I think that my listeners, especially with young children, would really um, get a lot out of that. So this is the book that I started with, The Way of Beauty. The subtitle is Liturgy, Education and Inspiration for Family, School and College. I'm reading it aloud to my 15-year-old, so we're reading it very slowly, but there's because there's lots of food for discussion. I would say if you had a, you know, 11, 12, 13 and older, that it would be a great read aloud to walk along with them, discuss with them. I think that it's just got a remarkable um, food for discussion, not just about art, not just about liturgy, not just about religious things, but about life, you know, and so I found I found that re- incredibly valuable and given me some really amazing insights. So thank you for that. It's been fantastic. I just got it on Amazon. So I'm assuming that uh, that's where everybody can get it on Amazon. <laughs> So I've not read the little oratory, but I do know of it. Uh, what is the what is the focus of the little oratory? Um, because it might be something with people with younger kids, you know, younger than 10, 12, 14 might want to start there. Okay, yes, I'll, I'll describe the, the, the what I was thinking when I wrote both of the books. Um, and you know, that's the easiest way to distinguish. Between them. That'd be yeah. great, yeah. So The Way of Beauty was written uh, in order... What I had in mind there was uh, an answer to the question, if I'm an artist, what sort of formation do I need? Uh, Aside from learning the skills, uh, which I was assuming you'd be able to get somewhere, pretty big assumption, but these were the challenges. (laughs) Huge, actually. (laughs) By the way, don't look to your local art school, for for mainstream art school, the skill that... The first thing they do, they do, you do one semester of life drawing and then they hand you a video. <laughs> but, but anyway, uh, so assuming you can get the skills somewhere, what is the formation that an artist would have in order to be able to paint to serve the church? And so I did a lot of research into the way that artists were trained historically, some of the mm-hmm. things I just described to you, the principles, the spiritual formation. How do you engender creativity and the ability to follow inspiration in pursuing your artistic virtue, if I put it that way. And I found that there were principles, and a lot of them I'm drawing parallels. I I went to different sorts of classes and I listened to what they were saying. Um, But it occurred to me, if I was correct, and that I discovered this way in which artists of the past, in all different styles, there are sort of standard principles that applied in to those artists who produced all the great works through centuries in the church and, and then were abandoned in the 20th century. If I was correct in that I discerned those things, then it occurred to me that this is something that should be part of everybody's general education because what I'm talking about is exactly what yeah. you were asking me for the for your children, what, what a way of developing in people an ability to apprehend beauty and, in, in general, a way of uh, inf- allowing that then to inform everything they do creatively. In other words, following inspiration. Um, and I, I'm not saying that insp- inspiration is on demand. It, clearly it isn't. God inspires whomsoever he pleases. But uh, th- there, there are ways of developing in the person the uh, facility, if you like, for recognizing inspiration and following it. And it occurred to me that it's not just artists who want that. Everybody wants that in everything they do. So I wanted to make yeah. an argument for that this should be included in the general education of Catholics, and then maybe I might be able to make an argument beyond that for all people. Um, and so I started to read the encyclicals and the statements by Pope in the last hundred years or so on Catholic education. And what I found, in fact, is that they were describing exactly what I was talking about. It occurred to me that barely any mm. Catholic institution actually includes these things. Even, and I mean those that are authentically Catholic. I'm mm-hmm. talking about those that are genuinely interested in following the magisterium and right. trying to um, yeah. look at what, what a Catholic education means. So I'm not criticising those people. I think everybody's almost had to start again in the last 30 or 40 years, 50 years, something like that. And so 
you know, some great, yeah. great starts have been made, but this was one aspect I felt that could be added to many of them. That's what is put it like that. So, so that's why it becomes a book on Catholic education as much as the formation of artists. So that's the way of beauty. It, it describes the culture, the basis of culture, and how people can contribute to it. So I think uh, just for parents to to know that this would be something if you if you have young children, I would recommend reading it to yourself because I think that you it would just heighten your awareness of what matters as you're approaching your homeschooling, right? I, that, that sounds great. In a way, I was thinking that this is something that would form the teachers and the as much as the artists. Okay. Um, Good. That's that's terrific to hear that. So so then um, the little oratory answers the question: Well, what is that spirituality of uh, of artists? And again, what I what I'm really pushing through the way of beauty is is a traditional Catholic spirituality, mm-hmm. which is centres on the the Eucharist as the source and summit of uh, Christian life, um, with the Mass as its heart, but then the Liturgy of the Hours, which mm-hmm. uh, we're told in the general instruction of the Liturgy of the Hours, that the purpose of it is to sanctify the day. In other words, it it, it does exactly what we're describing. It's through this uh, recharge at various points in the day, we can actually bring the Mass out, if I can use that language, or it enables us to you know, go to mm-hmm. you know, the sort of ita missa est, the dismissal, it actually facilitates us to do what we're asked to do at the end of the Mass. And, and it, 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 it is a spirituality which is designed to allow us to do just what mm-hmm. you were asking, inform with grace, if you like, mm-hmm. um, all the little things that we do, including you know, noble pursuits like art, but also just you know, cleaning up your room or something. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, so... Uh, what I wanted to do, and, and the thing that I noticed is that there is a uh, a gap in many people's lives in that the yeah. list of the hours is not traditionally part of the prep. So uh, what you have is that uh, typically the pattern would be this, I would say, is that you have uh, people uh, sort of prior to Vatican II, um, everything is in Latin. So that's fine for the Mass, and I don't have a problem with the Mass in Latin at all, even going right the way through today. But I don't think it's po- it's possible for most people to pray the Liturgy of the Hours in Latin, even if you have the the book, you know, with the English, the Latin on the left and the English on the right. You're not actually praying the the, the words. You need to engage. This is the one of the great gifts of the Second Vatican Council, I would say, is in the context of the Liturgy of the Hours, it allows for the <laughs> vernacular to be used and encourages it in the praying of the Psalms. So we can do that now for the first time. So mm-hmm. it wasn't done prior to the council because people on the you know didn't so much do mm-hmm. it in Latin. So this is where these devotions came in and perhaps had an exaggerated value. They're good, but they shouldn't be the next thing after the Mass. It should be the Liturgy of the Hours. And then what I found is that those, of course, the whole mm-hmm. thing has been a disastrous implementation in the church after Vatican II. So, so what you have there, right? Yeah, exactly. But the point I want to make is that those that are trying to retrieve tradition, typically there is a prejudice against the vernacular. I would say unnecessarily they want the Latin mass, but. So they're not inclined to pray the Liturgy of the Hours because they know that it, it, to do it well, you've got to, have to do it in English, really, if your first language mm-hmm. is English. But that is unfortunate. So the reason I wrote this book was to try and encourage the praying. Uh, with Lila Lawler, we, we did this together. It's very much a two-person right. thing. I have to acknowledge that. Um, and was to encourage, um, a, 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 if you like, a... a prayer life mm-hmm. that focuses on the Mass and the Liturgy of the Hours, but then also engaging the whole person in the way that I describe. So visual imagery, considering posture, encouraging people to chant, 
even if it is just recto tono, in other words, one note, I just do it like that and I just do it on one note. If that's all mm-hmm. you do, that is better than mumbling away. Um, actually singing what you do. This is the way that uh, St. Augustine said, that we sing our prayers, we pray twice. I would right. say you do visual imagery. Uh, it's, I, right. I would say we pray three times, but I think it's it probably squares it. It's four times and then six Mm-hmm. exponential growth the more of the person we engage if we bow at the mention of the trinity for example um, so that was the goal or is to get this introduced in family life as part of the the driving force for cultural change and the mm-hmm. new evangelization uh, and the way that that works is exactly through that quote that you gave right at the Beautiful. start that um, it leads to a joyful Christian life, and then people are curious mm-hmm. about us. And it, if ultimately, if being a Catholic is driven by a sense of obligation primarily, there's a problem. Uh, it, it has to be because I'm happier as a Catholic. <laughs> and I think a lot of people could remember that when they're dealing with non-Catholics, that if, if people... The first question yeah. is, why should I do what you're saying? The answer is, yeah. honestly, um, I'm not denying any of the joy you have in your life now, but I believe that you will be even happier if you follow this, if you mm-hmm. restrain from this activity, if you engage in this. I think there's an even more joyful life available to you. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of times, I think that actually comes just when we when we see somebody living out joy, when you know we that's looked at. And you know, I I you know I'm fortunate to live in a very beautiful little Catholic community, uh, you know, rural, lovely, just a lovely group of families, and people are drawn to that community, right? right? Okay. People from secular people, people from other churches, you know, like what is it you guys have? You know, ultimately that is the question that well, my own conversion was about that. What do these people have that I don't have? I want that. Right. That's lovely. Yeah. So. Yeah. So thank you so much. This is a, uh, this is fantastic actually. And I, uh, now I want to read a little oratory after I'm done. This. <laughs> uh, yeah. So lovely. Where can people find you if they want to know more about you and what you do and have a look at your art? Okay, so uh, I don't actually have much of my art around. There's a, the lot, there's a lot of my art in the back of the little oratory. Which oh, okay. And, uh, and with instructions on how to make up a, a, a an icon corner. Uh, but my website is thewayofbeauty.org. Okay. Um, also, if you're interested in the programs that I've helped create with Pontifex University, mm-hmm. uh, which would be a, a theology doctorate, a master of sacred arts, and now we have a... Uh, a master's in uh, Catholic school administration. Wow, okay. Um, that uh, with Father Peter Stravinskis, actually. is a very, very exciting new program. That would be at pontifex.university, www.pontifex.university. Okay. I, I will say there is one other book that I, I've written. There's a couple of other little ones, but... One called The Vision for You, How to Discover... I just saw this, yeah. Okay, so that is something that um, may be of interest to people, but and, and it arose because one of the reasons I became Catholic and actually uh, also became an artist um, and I was set off on this journey, I'm a convert, was I met a guy in London 33, four years ago who said that if I did these sort of spiritual exercises, I remember I was a sort of cynical atheist at this point, but he somehow convinced me he was older than me, and I saw the effect he had on other people around me, that I could be an artist. That's what he said. Hmm. What he didn't tell me was that he was Catholic, and all the exercises he was giving me were consistent with a Catholic understanding of the world. And he gradually revealed that. If he told me this, I would run a mile, okay? The great um, trick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, of course, the, the, what he was really giving me was the gift of faith, uh, which I, I viewed initially as the means to the end. Mm-hmm. But, of course, he viewed it, that as the end. <laughs> and so, uh, and I did become an artist, as he promised. Uh, but uh, 
I wrote about this, and what he was giving me actually was a traditional way of discerning our personal vocation, our calling in life. I, I don't mean state in life. I mean the full picture of our lives, what what work we do, where mm-hmm. we want to be. Um, and uh, it, when I wrote an article about this on my blog, I had more questions about that than anything I've ever done. Hmm. So I decided to put it in writing. Ah, and so, that, okay. so that might be of interest to people. And it's called The Vision for You, How to Discover the Life You Were Made For. It also describes the story of my conversion. Okay. It describes David and how he was sort of pushing, gently nudging me towards the church in subtle ways for three or four years. Well, David, you know what I would love to do? I'd love to read that book and have you back after I've read it. Absolutely delighted. Love it. Yeah. Okay, that would be wonderful because I think that, you know, we, we all are trying to move forward and, and, you know, draw closer to God in this journey. And the more support we can get in that, you know, it's a win, right? <laughs> That'd be wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been lovely. And uh, yeah, I'll I'll read it sometime in the next uh, few months and we'll have you back. That would be terrific. I've enjoyed it very much, Bonnie. Thank you for inviting me. Okay. God bless, David. Okay. Bye now.